Listening to Booze Bullshit and True Crime. I'm Bree. Hi. I'm Wade. Hi. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing great. Are you doing great? Yeah, I'm doing great. We had a long day today, guys. Yeah. It was pretty it's pretty intense of a day. We started a new job. Whoop whoop. So that's super cool. Hi Tyler. Yeah, more money. Um yep, more money, we get paid benefits, we get a work truck we actually get to take home, which we work like four and a half hours away from home, so that's super sweet, and we're pretty excited about it. Wade's eating blueberry cake, but he's like dancing and showing his excitement through movement, but unfortunately. Dancing because the cake is good. Oh, I've been drinking wine, my lips are all purple. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yeah, we had training today for that new job. We are in Folsom right now in a baller-ass hotel. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Like, it's a suite, and we have a full kitchen. So remember how we were talking about having nowhere to put our groceries and having to buy ice and keep it in our ice chest? Yeah. Not anymore, bitches. Full fridge. Full fridge. Yeah. We went and got sushi, loaded up. I feel like besides us changing jobs, being crazy, like, busy... With all that, I don't think anything else has really happened, has it? You are just stuffing your face. You're not being a really good co-host at all right now. I'm really not. I'm sorry. You, the blueberry cake can wait until I start talking for my background, which will be rather shortly. Well, you pretty much do all the talking anyway, so... Oh. Boom. Burn on myself. Factual. <laughs> just in general, I do all the talking is what he meant. True. Um, wow, we've gotten this far, and I haven't told you, we are going to do Killer Kids this week. And I told her earlier that I feel like we've already done this, and she said that we haven't, but I'm pretty sure that we have. You're making me really nervous, so I have to look on Spotify. Oh, uh, okay. So she's going to go into background really quick, and then we're going to get this ball rolling. My mouth is full of nerds. I know. So hurry up and eat your nerds, and then get into the background. Oh, the strawberry because ones are like sour. another 30 pages. I have so notes. many notes. Okay, always. I need to stop saying that because it's just always the same. Alright, so, Killer Kids, scary as shit. Um, I found a really good article on psychologytoday.com, and I got the majority of my information that I took notes on from there. When a crime is committed against a child, super easy for the general population to view the child as an innocent victim in this situation and the perpetrator as a depraved monster because obviously however when perpetrators of violent crime and murder are children it can be hard for us to process instances of children um, under the age of 12 years old is extremely rare that young it doesn't happen very often and is that just because of like them having their innocence so they wouldn't like they won't have those behaviors of a killer yet or what is the generally speaking yeah like the world hasn't quote unquote like tainted them or whatever but i think it's just a matter of children children as it is at 12 years old i don't think have an understanding of like death um 
I think they're capable of committing the act, but they don't understand the consequences. I feel like children much younger than that just don't even understand. They, they just don't have enough understanding to even make that decision. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it does happen. It doesn't happen very often. Over the age of 12 is a lot more common, but like under that age, below that threshold, it's just, it's extremely rare. According to a University of New Hampshire study conducted by professors David Finkelhor and Richard Drumrod. Nice. Yeah, super elegant names. Um, murderers of children committed by children age 11 and younger made up less than 2% of all child murders in the U.S. So the fact that they're younger than age 11... And the fact that they're murdering other children. So that's like the rarest of the rare. Rarest of the rare. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. my case is pretty rare. Sweet. Love that. Out of all the cases studied, the children and circumstances varied greatly. So they're like test pool of children that they, you know, studied and investigated, I guess you could say. So conclusive information is difficult to ascertain from the study. Um, just because there's so much psychology that goes into this shit and circumstance nature nurture all of that it it's kind of hard to come to like a general consensus but some similarities did emerge in that um study and that shined a small light into the minds of little tiny fun-sized murderers yeah yeah <laughs> in an overwhelming percentage of the cases that were studied, the child had been severely abused, neglected, or in some way experienced a super traumatic and tumultuous upbringing. Other similarities include having a family member with criminal history, so in and out of jail like a parent, suffering a traumatic loss at a young age, a history of outbursts or disruptive behavior, which I would have been a murderer a long time ago, Witnessing or experiencing violence and being rejected or abandoned by a parent. The level of understanding a child has um, with the crime they are committing is a great importance to the U.S. justice system when they're making a judgment call in a court of law when a child is involved. Something called the minimum age of criminal responsibility determines at what age a child can legally be deemed capable of committing a crime. So not committing a crime, but being, what's the word I'm looking for? Being um, convicted of crime. Oh. Yeah, they okay. can't, like, be, or be tried for a crime, essentially, yeah. like, if you're under a certain age. So you just pretty much have to say no contest or not guilty or whatever the sentencing is different like they can't be convicted in a court of law of murder like if they're and i'll go into that in my case but that's for juvenile court either which way even if it's for murder or you getting into a battery charge you're not actually saying that you are you're not convicted you're not taking guilt because you're a minor they can't be held responsible uh, for that crime under a certain age Got it. Yeah, so they can't be like, it can't even be brought into the hearing. If yeah. there's something else, 
surrounding that that they can convict of at that age they will but they can't go after murder which like i said i go into that in my case so we'll talk about that a little bit but different jurisdictions set different ages for this and some courts deem this age from a level of understanding hold on i have a glass of wine i'm trying to turn a page right now um so even though there is an age of criminal responsibility in each jurisdiction which there's a ton of fucking jurisdictions so wherever you go it's going to be completely different on top of that a court of law determines that as well so if there are you know underlying underlying factors that can they think you know sway the judgment in one way or another they'll take that into account and adjust how they see fit so in short eh, shoulder shrug like (laughs) okay (laughs) there's no like you can't say what age it is or it's just gray area that means the court Um, would find the child criminally responsible of the crime if they believe at the time the child understood the act was wrong, understood the difference between right and wrong, or understood their actions were a crime. So that's how they determine if, you know, the age is correct that's in their jurisdiction. This approach, though, has been said as being too simplistic, which, like... Fuck yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I read that and I was like, those are the things and it only has to be one thing. Oh my God. Okay. I said or, not and. <laughs> Criminal responsibility involves the understanding of multiple factors. That's why people are saying it's too simplistic. Like, like I said, there's a lot that fucking goes into it. Many of which children cannot fully understand even the aspects of the different... What? What? I'm confused there. Never mind. Why are you confused? So they are not saying it has it has to be one of these things? Yes. So they have to determine one of these things how? Uh? See what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Because you can't coerce him to say anything. So is it, he has no remorse. He did, He said he killed her, but he has no remorse to killing her. So, obviously, he knew exactly what he was doing, but he was like, meh, I'm a kid. You get what I'm saying? Like, how do they actually determine that? It's if if one of those three things has happened. So, like, if one happened and not the other, I believe they still would say that they had an understanding because they had one of the three things you know what i'm saying but like the people who are how are they determining those three things the people who are convicting these children these jury members it's a jury of your peers so it could be like the fucking loser ex-co-worker you had or but they're kids no i'm just saying there's people in juries that are not should not be put in charge of making that decision if one of these things happen that's okay. all i'm saying i'm just saying like it's a very not structured attempt okay okay that works okay all right um so that's my background in psych and child killers you want to go first sure how'd you do um because the warwick slayer Oh, Craig mind. Price. Go oh, you made you do me first. Okay, all right, yeah. I'll go. Wine break, dude, dude. There's a table to your right now too. 
That's not as close to my mouth. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, like I said, I'm doing the story of Craig Price. Um. Wasn't he older? Will you just let me tell my motherfucking He's like 16. story? sixteen. It's not a kid. It's teen. Can you wait? You don't even know. Did you research this case? Do you know? No. But I remember them doing it on one of your podcasts or the podcast that you make me listen to with you. I don't feel like I've... I'm pretty sure it was. I'm like, I mean, I listen to a lot of murder podcasts. I very well could have listened to an episode with him. But I didn't, like, when I was researching this case, I don't remember hearing an episode about... Not that it doesn't exist, but the people I listen to, like, the podcasts I listen to, I don't remember hearing a uh, episode about him. But, just wait. Okay. There, there's he fits in. Okay. He fits and the bill. I probably bell. feel like we done a child case because we recently listened to one, and now that I've been sitting here thinking about it this entire time, I have listened to a podcast that did my story really, really well. Okay. So, yeah, good luck. Exactly. <laughs> Do you know who it was? Might be a short shout him out. Um, I really don't remember. It I, had I to might. Been, it had to have been winding crime. It had to have been with me, so I'll, it had to have been I'll be able to figure it out. I love them. They're my favorite podcast. Nice pop. Nice pop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I couldn't find much of anything on the young childhood of Price, like when he was a, a wee lad. Um, though I did find that he was from a working class family in Warwick, Rhode Island, and they did seem like on the poor end of that. Oh. Craig Price is one of the youngest serial killers that I have ever researched. He committed his first murder at the age of 13. There you go. Uh, teen. That's still a kid. 13 is a kid. Okay. I was going for, like, kid, kid. Oh, well, you're impressive. I couldn't find very, I couldn't find a serial I'm killer ki- that I was actually, that young. I don't is remember. Is he a serial killer or she? No, he is not a serial killer. Okay, well, I got a serial killer, so suck my cock. Uh by all means. <laughs> By all means. Please. Um, so he was thir- Please allow me. <laughs> he committed his first murder at the age of 13. Uh, on sep- But we're going to fast forward a little bit. On September 4th, 1989, Marie Bouchard dropped in to check on her daughter. Her daughter's name was Joan Heaston, who was 39 at the time. She was also stopping by to check on her two grandchildren that lived in the home as well. Jennifer, 10 years old, and Melissa, 8. Marie was worried about them because she had not heard from her daughter at all over the Labor Day weekend, which I thought was fitting because we kind of just had Labor Day. It's pretty good. Good job. It's pretty We're good. It's pretty, pretty good. It's, it's pretty, pretty nice. nice. It's pretty, pretty nice. nice. It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> bad. Marie brought Joan's sister with her named Mary Lou. Mary Lou who? They noticed Joan's car in her driveway. But she didn't answer the door, so they let themselves in after they rang the doorbell a few times. As soon as they entered the home, they knew it was bad news. There was blood splattered on the walls in the entryway, and a putrid smell hung in the air. They continued through the house, only to find Joan laying in the hallway beneath blood-covered sheets, so someone had, like, covered her up. Joan's daughter Jennifer was also laying nearby, having suffered the same fate. The youngest daughter, Melissa, lay dead on the kitchen floor. Marie and Mary Lou immediately called authorities, and they were on the scene within minutes. 
the savagery of the crime is pretty fucking disturbing. It was saying, like, the investigators of the case were, like, throwing up and had to go to therapy after, and a lot of them have a lot, had a lot of issues psychologically after it just because the... I'll get into it, but, like, the scene was... I can't imagine, like, actually placing myself there. It's pretty fucked up. All victims had been stabbed a lot. A fucking lot. Um, with kitchen knives that were taken out of the home. Oh. So, the serial killer who did the killing just grabbed some kitchen knives out of their kitchen. The youngest daughter, Melissa, which she's fucking eight, by the way, was stabbed with such force that a kitchen knife blade actually broke off in her neck. Like, the handle broke off and the blade was still sticking into her neck. Her skull had been shattered by a kitchen bar stool to the head. Um, Joan had a total of 57 stab wounds. 57 with a kitchen knife. If that wasn't enough, she was also strangled and bludgeoned. Um, just so much overkill. Like, I'm sure he was still just doing shit after they were, like, long gone. Like, there was obviously a lot of anger within the person committing the crimes. Detectives believed the three bodies had been lying there undiscovered for at least three days. Warwick police um, were determined to solve the case. They immediately started reviewing evidence and interviewing locals, working day and night on the investigation, like literally 24 hours a day. One of the FBI's top profilers, Greg McCrary, was also assigned to the case, which, do you know what a profiler is? Yeah. Okay, so it's like, well, you, you tell everybody what a profiler is then. The, I tell them what it is? Yeah. So they pretty much go over, like, your motives, why, you, why a killer would do something, so they would check the scene to see what kind of character the killer is, and then they would build off of that and be able to tell, you know, from the sophistication of the crime, he's this age, you know, the bludgeoning, the bla bladder spray or whatever. Bladder spray? Wow. Blood splatter. There's just piss. Piss, <laughs> piss everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> the blood oh splatter, they can tell, like, how tall you are. They pretty much build a profile of the killer without knowing who the killer is. Perfect. And they go as deep as intelligence and even the, appearance sometimes a, yeah even appearance of sometimes and like it, if they're like unkempt and disheveled and like overweight things yeah, like that or if I've they're seen. organized and meticulous they're mm -hmm. going to be proper and smart and they're going to have a big vocabulary like they go deep 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 like and they're they usually spot figure, on yeah, if they're good they could literally not never meet you ever and like put you down to a T, spot you to a T. Yeah, I could even tell you, you know, that he's gonna be wearing flip flops, board shorts, and a tank top, blonde hair, blue eyes. Like, they'll be able to get it all the way down to a T. It's crazy. It's it's pretty crazy what they can do. And this was one of FBI's top profilers that they had pulled. So he was like, big business. The similarities between. Oh wait. <laughs> I skipped a note. Sorry. Rewind. Good job. He, he was assigned to the case. McCreary strongly believed this case was connected to another murder in the area two years earlier. There we go. The similarities between the crimes were significant. 
Flashback to July 1987, 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer was found dead in her living room. Um, she, like the others, was stabbed repeatedly over and over and over again, this time with a packing knife, which, is that a box cutter? Yeah, I think so. Ugh, uh, uh, yeah, that's bad. Ugh. In both cases, the individuals were stabbed with objects already present in the home, so that box cutter was within Rebecca's home already. Because of this, detectives concluded the perpetrator likely entered the home for another reason, so this is the profiler, um, such as burglary, and killed the victims with an available object in the home after getting caught in the act. So what they had concluded from both of those murders is they didn't enter the home looking for someone to kill, essentially. Both of these murders happened five doors down from each other. McCrary stated that thieves tend to rob homes near theirs because they are more familiar with them, um, which makes the robbery more successful, further proving his robbery gone wrong theory. So, like, you likely know the layouts of the homes, have been in them or whatever, and your robbery is going to be more successful. I, I imagine it's less of a drive to probably drop off the stuff. So they were making that assumption from those crime scenes. The blatant display of overkill was present in both cases, as well with um, Joan and Rebecca being stabbed approximately 60 times each, and the children 30 times each. McCrary also suspected that the perpetrator would have an injured or stabbed hand due to the frenzied nature of the stabbing, so I guess they were just like all over the place. Um, so now they had a place to start looking, so near the neighborhood, and a narrowed victim pool. All they needed now was a little luck and some detective work to catch the guy. Now it's one day after the discovery of the last three bodies, September 5th, 1989. And this is like a fucking movie. Like, I, I love this case. I loved researching this. Detectives Ray Pendergast and Mark Brandreth were driving through a park in the neighborhood of which the crimes were committed, and that was called Buttonwood. In the park, Officer Pendergast sees a familiar face, 15-year-old Craig Price, who Pendergast had coached in a local basketball league. So they roll up. They notice Craig has a bandage on his hand. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. Page turn. That's right. We old school. We write notes on paper. Or I do. You write them on your phone. I do. Like a millennial. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't a burn. Pendergast proceeded to ask Craig if he had heard about the murders. Craig said he had watched the bodies being taken out of the home as he lived just a few doors down from the Heaton family. The officers then asked about Craig's wounded hand. He claimed he had gotten drunk a few nights earlier and punched his hand through a car window near Keeley Avenue, which was in the area they were in as well. Both officers left the park feeling sketched the fuck out, so they decided to follow up on him and investigate him in a story, which, like, first of all, why would you tell officers that he said he was trying to rob a car, like he was trying to break into a car, so he punched the window because he was drunk and then cut his hand? Like, why would you tell a cop that? Why would that be your story? And the coincidence, the profiler said that he was going to have an injured hand, all of that. Meanwhile, a blood spatter expert was called to observe the crime scene. He found vital clues, such as a bloody sock print, revealing the killer wore a size 13 shoe. 
After some digging around, it was apparent that Craig Price was not your average 15-year-old. What do you think was his deal? Craig's deal? Oh, family drama. Okay. His dad beat him. He had already racked up a rap sheet that included breaking and entering, peeping, theft, and drug use. Oh. Yeah. I'm I mean, sure his home life wasn't great. Like I said, I couldn't find anything about it. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a while ago. Yeah, um, police had been dispatched multiple times to his residence to settle disputes involving him, and he was known to have an extremely hot temper. And again, he's 15 at this time. Investigators took him to the station and questioned him, this time more thoroughly about his hand injury. He maintained he cut it while trying to break into a car, which the cops weren't buying. Investigators then asked Craig to submit to a polygraph, which he agreed to. Although the polygraph did prove Craig was lying, they still needed more evidence against him, which polygraphs are extremely unreliable. But I'm like a double-edged sword with them. I'm like, he didn't pass it, he's guilty. And then I'm like... The guy wouldn't take it. He's guilty. I'm like, I'd, they're not really that accurate, and they've been proven not to be. I don't know if I would submit to one. Fuck no. Deny, deny, deny. Yeah. Even if they got me on video, I'd be like, how do you know that's really me? No. I'm saying even <laughs> if I was innocent, I don't think I would submit to a polygraph, because I'm such an anxious person. I feel like I would fail it anyways, because it's a lot to do with like heart rate. Yeah. That has to do with your com- you being comfortable. I'm never comfortable. Exactly. I'm literally never comfortable in life. I would fail that shit so quick. Uh-oh. Um, okay, so he agreed to the polygraph, failed it. They continued interviewing locals, friends, and family members, and learned that Craig ran away with a group of delinquent kids a while back. This group acted as a gang and burglarized houses in the area. They also learned that Craig had boasted about killing Rebecca Spencer. Investigators were quick to secure a search warrant for Craig's home with this new information. In the early morning hours of September 17, 1989, a team of officers showed up on Craig's doorstep ready to search, which (laughs) Craig's dad answered the door and was like, what the fuck? And they're like, warrant. And he's like, I, I mean, sure. There you go. Super confused. Officers sat the whole family down in the living room while conducting the search. This included Craig, both parents, and Craig's brother. The family was obviously upset and confused by the situation and, like, crying and freaking out, while Craig dozed off to sleep on the couch. Which is fucking weird. You killed a bunch of people, and officers show up to raid your house, and you're like, I'm just gonna, like, catch some Z's. Like, you'll have plenty of time to do that in prison. Nah, not comfortably. (laughs) <laughs> still <laughs> you can do lots of sleeping i'm sure yeah yeah well yeah um let's see so he fell asleep on the couch while searching a shed behind the home a trash bag filled with evidence was discovered inside the bag they found multiple bloodied knives from the heaton home as well as bl- as well as bloodied articles of clothing and bloodied gloves that were discarded in the bag Upon this discovery, investigators had to quite literally wake Craig back up to arrest him for the Heaton murders. They're like, hey, hey, you're going to jail. Which, by the way, didn't even phase him. He literally just was annoyed that they woke him up. And he was like, whatever, put me in the handcuffs, take me away. Like, was not bothered in the slightest. 
After getting Craig into police custody, he surprised detectives by immediately taking credit and admitting to the Heaton murders. As Craig recounted the events that took place, his father became physically ill and had to go to the men's room to vomit and was unable to re-enter the room for the interrogation. He just couldn't do it. He told the investigators that his original intention was to rob the Heaton home. He crawled through an open window in the kitchen. Upon crawling through the window, he fell and broke a table, which awakened Joan. He continued into the home, not realizing that anyone had woken up. Joan walked into the kitchen in a state of frenzy, um, and he beat and strangled Joan. Joan's screams awoke the children, who stumbled into the hallway. Melissa ran to the kitchen, phone to call the police. Melissa was like the youngest, the eight-year-old. Yeah. But Craig overpowered her. He then grabbed kitchen knives and began stabbing all of them. One of the children bit Greg's hand, which, fuck yeah, during the attack. Um, and as some weird fucking retaliation, he bit her on the face? So they, like, used that to, like, match up his dumb records to it. But yeah. he, like, yeah, bit the little girl on the face. He also bit Joan. Melissa was still struggling against him fiercely, and that's when he bludgeoned her over the head with a stool. So she was, like, still fighting back after being stabbed, like, 30 times. That little 8-year-old girl. Okay. Super disturbing, super terrible, super sad. He did admit he was surprised by the fight they all put up. All three of them fought hard for their lives before succumbing to their injuries. During the event, Craig had also accidentally stabbed himself in the hand, which ding ding. Once he had killed all three victims, he removed his gloves and tended to his injuries in the bathroom, not realizing he left a trail of blood and a bloody sock print. Craig then covered the bodies with the sheets, threw the evidence in the trash bag, and fled the scene. He went home, stashed the trash bag out back, and hid his bloody clothes in another bag in the attic, which investigators located. When asked about Rebecca Spencer, he admitted to killing her as well at just 13 years old. He showed little remorse for the killing and provided detectives with the details they needed to convict him of the murders. Unfortunately, or the murder of Rebecca. Unfortunately, in this situation, Craig had the law on his side. In the state of Rhode Island, at the time of the murders, the court system only could hold him in a training school until his 21st birthday because he confessed before he was 16. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's that, like, age of understanding I'm talking about. So no matter what, no matter how many people this kid killed, he confessed before he was 16, so they're like, nope, training school until your 21st birthday, then your record's expunged, or not expunged, but sealed, because you're a minor, and then you get to go out into the world. Even though Craig could not be tried for the murders, he had to, because it's psychological, so that's why it's sealed, because he wasn't convicted of the murders, because he was, yeah. I get it. (laughs) I'm just... I'm just... I'm just... Yeah. Fuck the system. How fucked up is that? It gets better. Sure. But this wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, Even though Craig could not be tried for the murders, he had to undergo a court hearing before being sent to the training school, so there still had to be a hearing. Craig was ordered to serve five years at the Rhode Island Training School's Youth Correctional Center on September 21st, 1989. No jail, no juvie, just a correctional facility. That's jail. 
No, but they were saying that it it's was... It's a men's colony. You're still in jail. They said it wasn't a juvenile detention center, though. It's probably not a juvenile detention center. I think it was center. more like uh, they were trying it's to like, like reform. Rehab, yeah. You're still in jail and you're still living there. I don't send you home. No, I understand that. He didn't get to leave, but he didn't go to to jail. Yeah. And he went for, like, what? He was 15 when he confessed, so that's six years. Yeah. Well. Structuring facility. That's what he was sentenced for initially, at least. Initially. He was also ordered to undergo intense psychological examination therapy, which Craig straight up refused. Um, I think by the guidance of his lawyers, he was just like, nope, not doing it. When he got to the facility. He just wouldn't talk. Four individuals rallied to stop Craig's release as the release date approached, you know, in that six years. They were Joan's mother and sister, Kevin Collins, who led the investigation, and Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Pine. They worked together to create stiffer laws for teenage murderers, as well as the power to indefinitely commit mentally ill individuals. They campaigned, raised money through a nonprofit that they created, and spread the word on Craig's horrific crimes. I didn't have enough time to fully go into everything they did, but like they, they did a lot. They created that nonprofit. They changed legi- keep him in jail. True, but they changed legislation. Like they, because they had these, you know, his mom and sister. Well, no, and the assistant attorney general. And the lead investigator on the oh, I know, case. but that carries a lot of weight that his mom and mm-hmm. sister are keeping him in jail because they feel that the system is weak on this front. They had to walk in and see that. It's fucked. I'm sure they were angry. I would be angry. I would want to fucking stab that guy through the eyeball. Like, ugh. Um, on June 8th, 1994, Craig was indicted on one count of simple assault and extortion for threatening a training school employee. He was also threatened, or no, he also was threatened with being held in contempt of court if he continued to refuse psychiatric treatment, which he continued to refuse it, but the court ordered him to do so. So the fact that he had refused it for almost six years, they were like, okay, you're in contempt of court. Like you have to do this. Another year was added to his sentence for refusing treatment, and he finally agreed after this to be evaluated. Craig's court hearing for extortion and simple assault came, and on October 7, 1994, he was found guilty. He was then sentenced to another 15 years at the same facility. So they, like, threw the book at him. While incarcerated, he bit a CO's finger and was charged with a probation violation, even though he was still incarcerated. They somehow, like... (laughs) <laughs> charged him with the probation violet. They said, like, this is not normal, but they found a way to do it. Um, assault, and he was given another year to his sentence for that. Craig also did not comply with his court-ordered evaluations, even though he agreed to do so at the last hearing. He lied about events surrounding the murders and was not being honest, so they could not evaluate him. He was held in contempt of court again and given an additional 25 years at the facility. In October 1998, Craig once again assaulted a CO and was given seven more years. In February 1999 and in October 2001, he was sentenced to another four years for again verbally and physically assaulting another CO. 
There is no telling exactly when Craig will be released. He is projected to be released February 2022, but I highly doubt the state of Rhode Island will release this piece of shit. He's probably going to assault another CO in the meantime, and people have changed legislation and made big waves to make it happen. So fuck Craig Price. I hope he rots in that facility forever. Yeah, fuck you, Craig Price. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're cool, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Mom and sister, you're cool, but fuck you, Craig. Yes, exactly. So I'm I'm like 98% sure that I just listened to this case on another podcast, and I for sure thought that we did this case, but we have not. So, my case is about Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips. Definitely not. That is a name. Yes, it is. Yeehaw. He was born March 17th, 1984. He was born in Jacksonville, Florida, and he was convicted in July 1990 of murdering eight-year-old Maddie Clifton Hmm. in November 1998. This is when he was 14. (laughs) (laughs) You're a dick. I did a case when you were actually a kid. I not didn't. a teenager. I didn't say that. I huh? just said you picked a teen because you haven't heard mine. So, boom, shakalaka-laka. You're lame. I know. Anyways, he's serving life in prison at the Cross Cities Correctional Institution. And I googled where that's at, but I didn't put it in my notes. So you don't remember? Don't remember where it's at. Okay. Pretty sure if it's Florida, he's probably on the East Coast somewhere. <laughs> I'm assuming. And the case was pretty big because it was covered national TV, and they have a documentary on 48 Hours titled, Why Did Josh Kill? Why did Josh kill? Well, he was known as the boy who killed 8-year-old Maddie Clifton <laughs> and hid her body under his waterbed for weeks. <laughs> Showed no reaction Friday as a judge told him he will have to spend the rest of his life behind bars. You remember this one? I think this was Ryan and Crime. I'm like 90% sure it is now that I'm talking about it. And Make my fucking day and at me. Was that you guys? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so family members and friends... Uh, <laughs> they're uh, Those both in favor... And against the decision in one of Jacksonville's most recognized cases, shared tears as they pretty much saw that he got, you know, life in prison. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was pretty emotional because Josh, now 33, was 14 when he beat and stabbed his neighbor, young neighbor friend, because she came over to try to play with them and... I think they actually were playing catch were. in the front yard, uh-huh. and he, like, missed the catching the ball, or he threw the ball too hard at her, and it hit her in the head, and she started bleeding above her, above her eye. And then he was freaking out because she wasn't supposed to be over there because he wasn't done with his chores, plus his dad wasn't home, and to shut her up, he beat her. But, like, she was just crying. Yeah. Like, the injury hurt her, but it did not incapacitate her in any way. This kid is fucking nuts. Yeah. So he beat her with a baseball bat and then shoved her partially clothed body under her bed 
No, on uh, his under bed. his bed, and then dragged her out and stabbed her when he discovered she was still alive on November third, nineteen eighty or nineteen ninety eight. That is. Like, the worst thing ever. Yeah. Oh, my God. He later said that he resumed... After doing that, he went back to watching porn in Ah! his room. Like, nothing was wrong. Like, you know what I mean? He just noticed that she was still alive. Heard her breathing underneath there and, like, squirming. And then just went back to doing what he was doing before, which was porn. Yeah, oh and these are God. all court records. Like this is what was said in court. So it wasn't even that that got him horny. It's that that he was doing that already. Ew. Well, I think it was they're try they're pretty much playing it together as if like you know he was horny because she was dead underneath her, his bed, oh. and then he was like, "Oh shit, she's still alive!" And then freaked out, stabbed her, shoved her back underneath there, and then continued. Oh my God! Why did I ask was, that? Oh my God. Yeah, so Philip's mom was the one that actually discovered Maddie's body under her son's bed. She discovered air fresheners, a baseball bat, the Leatherman, and a flyer that said Maddie was missing in his room scattered around when she was cleaning up and was kind of like thrown off by the smell and shit of the room. And the fact that it was, like, it wasn't just a couple air fresheners. This fool had, like, Glade plug-ins, like, the hanging car fresheners. Like, he had, like, freshener, freshener, like, everything out the ass in his room. Like, this kid's end game was literally to let that girl just stay underneath his bed. Yeah, pretty much. So, the Maddie's family was very emotional at the testimony in August and during the sentencing sentencing hearings and were firm that Philip should not be offered his freedom. Jessica Clifton was 13 when her sister was killed and the world as she knew it was turned upside down. After sentencing, she and her mother... Both said they didn't they didn't want to think about what might happen next. So pretty much they're saying that they just wanted it to be life in prison and that be it. They don't have to think about it anymore. Uh-huh. Though Phillips is among some 600 Florida killers and criminals who were children when they were sentenced to life in prison. They are now having their life sentence is vacated and getting an opportunity to demonstrate rehabilitation and maturity sufficient to warrant release. Yay. Yeah. Judge might also weigh the crimes. It pretty much weighs the crimes and how they're doing to see how it would impact the community. Obviously, it's case-by-case basis, and about 20% of these youthful offenders are sent back to prison for life. Okay, well, that's still good, I guess. They're being evaluated. They are, and it's case-by-case, so it's not like a whole scheme. So this kid's not going to get out, right? That I didn't get into. I I looked because the articles in the case that I was, like, referencing my notes on were talking about, like, what you went over with all of them. That's why I was skipping over some of my notes, and it was like a short dive because you had already gone over... Like, 
the whole mental aspect and what yeah. they look for and, you know, all that crap. That's why I was saying, because I couldn't find any information on how they really, really deemed it. But all I got was the fact of how their case, how young they were, what their responses were during trial and shit like that. Everything. And, yeah, and then how it would impact the community today, not like, you know, they would have if they were just released right after doing the crime. Right. That was the only thing that I that was consistent in the articles that I was reading. So, uh, Wallace, which was one of the DAs on Wallace! the case. Yeah, he actually wrote or had a sentencing order that was 31 pages and detailed the case law and the case law for resentencing and spelled out the reasoning for why this kid should get life in prison and have life in prison. Fuck yeah. And he got life in prison. Fuck yeah. Yeah. No appeal, no nothing. He had an appeal, but not Call him away. So that's my case about Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips. Joshua Earl. And this fool is crazy. Like, if you actually go and actually read the case, because I kind of just did a short skim of what I had, because Bree kind of touched on some of the stuff. But Sorry. His case is pretty gnarly. And some of the stuff I left out just because it was hard for me to read, so it would be hard for me to read out loud. Ah, see, I am the complete opposite of you. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, he, you know, he was getting charged for potentially assaulting her physically and stuff like that, but... Those Kate, those trials or those accusations were like dropped. Sexually assaulted. Yeah, because her pants were down and yeah, they weren't just down like you know he was pushing her under the bed and they got caught and got pulled down because it was like her panties were in there and then she got pushed in there, meaning that the panties were thrown in first before she was pushed. Why are in. you using that word? panties yeah i don't know fuck underwear sorry i apologize i'm sorry anyways <laughs> it just freaks me out that's so sad yeah so that's why i didn't really bring it up yeah it was kind of yeah because plus the i was reading case notes like oh yeah like that's detailed intense. case notes shit. well once i found it i was like how you know why would i go anywhere else right. but here that's intense though yeah. to read about that like and in this a case dude's file. crazy weird like, they're, the first picture, his booking picture, I don't know if it was his actual booking picture, but he was pretty much bald. And then when he was in going to court recently, I don't know if it was recently, recently, but like maybe 14, 2014, he had this big old long beard and goatee, and I mean, he's 33 now, he was yeah. 14 when he was convicted. And yeah. Fuck that guy. Crazy. My case, done! 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 Um, I will say... You guys, most of us that are listening to us on iTunes have subscribed to us. So thank you. We're at like 71% subscribed. Yeah. We appreciate everybody that's listening. If you could comment, if you're listening on iTunes, that helps us out tremendously. That would make our day. Be the first. There, it says we have two comments, but I can't like access them. If I could, I would call them out right now on the people who commented, but we do have a couple. Um, not very many, but if you guys could write a nice comment, if you enjoy it, that would be super nice. If, you know, you feel so inclined, um, Facebook, Instagram, booze, bullshit, and true crime. I'm having to be very limited on Facebook because we're having issues with our Facebook page right now. So keep that in mind. Zuckerberg. (laughs) Fucking high school with you. (laughs) You're such a weirdo. (laughs) 
And email email us your personal stories at boozebsandtruecrime at gmail.com, please. Later, Gator. Thanks, bye.